0: Okay, so first of all, this is Hello Climate Change. Um, The idea is waking up and taking action one conversation at a time. And that is why I started this podcast, to give myself a place to have conversations with people about this. So I'm really excited that today's conversation is with Angie Seth, who is a climate scientist and a friend of mine. So that's like pretty cool for me. Hi, Angie. Hi, Amy. Yeah, hi. So let's first start. Just tell everyone where you are right now because we're not in the same room.
1: <laughs> hi. I'm sitting in my office with a great view of the Flatirons in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I'm at the National Center for Atmospheric Research where um, it's, it's actually one of the locations in the country that develops and builds climate models for use in climate projections.
0: I wanted to ask you about how how someone becomes a climate scientist and how, actually what what maybe you could tell us through telling us you, you know your your story.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, um I guess my path to climate science isn't that unusual. Um I have an undergraduate degree in engineering in mechanical engineering and I Specialized if you can specialize as an undergraduate in more in heat transfer and thermal fluids, and um, and so I worked for a few years in industry, uh, and decided that I really wanted to go to graduate school because you know working as an engineer um, at that time, which I'm relatively old, so there weren't that many women in. You know my group, and and I I just I wanted more. I was more curious, so I went to graduate school, and initially I went in engineering, um, but I quickly found that you know this was more of the same, mm. and really what I wanted was something different, and I had never been uh, I use the term affectionately weather weenie, um, <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> I found this at- atmospheric science department at the University of Michigan mm-hmm. that um, where a professor was co-listed between engineering and atmospheric sciences, and mm-hmm. I spoke with him, and he, you know, told me what the atmospheric science program was all about, and and really one of my favorite courses as an undergraduate was geology. Which, and it and it made me think that you know I'm trying to understand the earth system and the atmosphere better is something I could really get into um climate wasn't in the public at that point although um the year I went to graduate school James Hansen gave his first testimony to, to Congress mm-hmm. in 1988 so it was just beginning to be in the public realm, global warming. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, I ended up in atmospheric science, and, and that's really how it began. Um, mm-hmm. From Michigan, I got a fellowship to come to the National Center for Atmospheric Research, where I actually did the research for my Ph.D. and got involved in climate models mm-hmm. and their development and testing and experimentation. So, so it's not uncommon that path because a lot of people who go into atmospheric science and climate studies um, come from mathematics or engineering or some physics-based undergraduate. Um, at the that that's also very specific to climate science. In fact, if people are interested in climate science this point, you can come into it from many different disciplines because it's such an interdisciplinary topic. So geologists can be climate scientists, biologists, um, you know, even if you're studying sociology, we need you in climate science.
0: Hmm. (laughs) Because
1: I told you, Amy, artists are really important at this point.
0: And you sent me a really interesting, art. I mean, sort of inspiring little article. I think a, a link which I have t- have retweeted or tweeted or how I don't remember if you emailed it to me or tweeted it to me, but but I'll put it in the show notes as well. Just to follow up on that, what is it that sociologists bring to the table in climate science? Do you think? Well,
1: yeah. So it it's not climate science
0: per se. But right. Okay. It's Addressing it, yeah.
1: Problem, mm-hmm. which is understanding um, how humans, what humans perceive about the problem, what can be done behaviorally. You know, they're they're in on many mm-hmm. fronts. So, for mm-hmm. how to um, reduce the problem, to mitigate greenhouse gases, how to adapt to the changes that are built into the system that we can't. Mitigate, you know, there humans are are deeply intertwined in this problem, and understanding all the ways that we are involved and will have to respond right. our sociological problems.
0: Right? Yeah, and that's that and was political problems. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, And so the way that you – see, part of the reason that I wanted to ask you about why, how somebody comes into being a climate scientist is that I was hearing – I'm trying to remember what. I think I was watching a – oh, there's a documentary series called uh, The Years of Living Dangerously or something like that. Mm -hmm. Is that the right title? Um, There was somebody that was – there was somebody that's basically whose life is about – um of uh, fighting <laughs> this prevailing science and he was identifying himself as a cli- climate scientist and his rationale for that was that he had taken a couple of courses as an undergrad so i thought it was i thought it was would be good to hear you know what it means to be a climate scientist how much <laughs> how much actual study and work goes into that
1: Yeah, I guess I guess my definition of a climate scientist is someone who um, does research that contributes to you know expanding our understanding of the the entire socio political physical geological problem. So. if it, you know taking a couple of undergraduate courses can certainly make someone passionate about activism on the problem, um, but I wouldn't call them a climate scientist necessarily. Right. Well,
0: especially if they're saying that it's not it's not really happening, or <laughs> which was the case with this guy. Oh, right. <laughs> most of
1: the most of the denial machine are people who are almost completely untrained in climate science. There are a handful of people who actually have training um, and are, you know, what I would consider climate scientists that are in that camp, but it is a minuscule fraction of the, the number of scientists. So if we, if we move on to the question of um, what is the... Yes. Yeah. I would say the number one thing is um, that that there is a complete, as complete as possible, agreement among the scientific community on this issue.
0: Right. been manipulated yes i just give a benefit of doubt of some yeah that some people actually sincerely believe uh you know it's just like oh, right. when because I, they're
1: untrained and they're hmm. reading what you know they're reading the misinformation
0: right and it's and it's um reassuring <laughs> the, the misinformation is reassuring so so it's nice to stop yeah. there if you can help it
1: Um, the the science has, as I said, has been understood for a long time. It's basic physics. Um, the should I just say a little bit about how it works um, so that yeah, sure people can understand? So so the the basic idea is a fairly simple one. Um, it's about Earth's energy balance and. So, you know, you can equate this to your checkbook if you really want. So the Earth, just like your bank account, has um, energy coming in in your bank account. It's hopefully money coming in. And uh, you spend money going out, and the Earth emits heat to space, to cool itself. So, Earth's energy balance is a, a balance between the sunlight that heats the Earth and the heat that it loses back out to space. And and so if those two things are in balance, then the temperature of the Earth is stable, right? It doesn't change. Mm-hmm. Just like if your the money coming in and the money going out of your bank account are equal, then your bank balance stays the same, Mm -hmm. right? So so that's how the Earth's temperature is set. It's set by this balance between the incoming energy from the sun and the outgoing heat. And the thing that changes that balance will change the temperature of the Earth. So if the sunlight suddenly increases, then the temperature will go up. Or, alternatively, if the amount of heat lost to space increases and the sunlight stays the same, then the temperature would go down. And so that's, that's the basic physical problem. And the way greenhouse gases work is they're like a blanket that keeps the heat that would normally be emitted from the Earth to space, it keeps some of that in the system and directs it back downward to the surface so very similar to a blanket so more greenhouse gases mean more heat directed downward instead of out to space and that creates an imbalance between the sunlight and the heat loss to space and what has to happen is that temperature has to increase until that balance is achieved again Mm -hmm. Very, very simple concept so that's what's happening and um, and we've understood that physics for 150 years. Now, um, other things that are important.
0: Well, let's before we go into other things, let's just cover yeah. what are the greenhouse gases, Carbon dioxide, methane? Is there anything else that we should be yeah. m- particularly okay. concerned about?
1: So, carbon dioxide and methane are are important greenhouse gases. Mm-hmm. The way to think about it is, if you if you know any chemistry at all, all you need to know is how many atoms are in the molecule. So, CO two is a carbon and two oxygen. Um, methane is a carbon and four hydrogen. Uh, water vapor is what is H two O, so it's a hydrogen and two oxygen. So. Basically, anything that can exist in the atmosphere as a gas that has more than two atoms in it Mm. is going to be a greenhouse gas. And it just has to do with the physical chemistry of the molecule, because if it only has two atoms, like oxygen, O2, or nitrogen, N2, those are the things that make up most of the atmosphere. Mm. Those are not even remotely part of this problem sunlight passes right through them heat going out passes right through them but these greenhouse gases the molecules that are more complex that have three or more atoms have ways of vibrating and rotating that are more complicated, and they tend to interact with the heat, mm, okay. not the light, not the sunlight, but the heat that's escaping from the planet. Okay. So so, so the things that are greenhouse gases are CO2, methane, water vapor is a greenhouse gas. Mm. and And I'll stop there for a minute, because one of the kind of confusing issues that people seem to get hung up on is the fact that there's a lot more water vapor in the atmosphere than there is carbon dioxide okay right so why isn't water vapor the thing we're worrying about <laughs> right yeah that's a fair question right some people say oh water vapor is more important so why are we worrying about co2 well so tell us Angie right. <laughs> There is a lot more water vapor than there is CO2. Um, the difference and the reason that water vapor is not the problem mm-hmm. is has to do with how long these things stay in the atmosphere once you put them in. Mm-hmm. So water vapor, as we all know, cycles out of the atmosphere within days, okay. right? It'll evaporate and then rain out or snow out mm-hmm. or Water vapor to be
0: in the atmosphere is relatively short. So if there's Whereas um, CO- sorry. So if it rains, then whatever heat was trapped by that water vapor is coming. Is what happens to that? So just the, so, the heat so, escapes.
1: Right. Okay. So so the water vapor is cycling through the atmosphere. little bit because we have more heat directed downwards from that CO2. So once the temperature increases a little bit, this is what happens to water vapor. There's a a very clear relationship between temperature and water vapor. So if you look at the Earth's atmosphere, places that are warm have more water vapor in the atmosphere than than places that are cold in general, Mm -hmm. right? clear relationship with temperature how much water vapor can be in the atmosphere so as you increase temperature because of more co2 then there can actually be more water vapor in the atmosphere too because the temperature is higher so we call water the additional water vapor a positive feedback to the temperature change from co2 so co2 is the thing that is going to drive the temperature change because it stays in the atmosphere for a long time mm-hmm. water vapor then can increase because the temperature is higher due to the co2 and it will stay it will stay at this higher level until the co2 is removed or you know something else happens to the co2 so the water vapor, isn't the primary driver of temperature change, but it amplifies the temperature change
0: oh, I see.
1: that is already initiated because of the CO2. And it just has to do with the fact that the CO2, once it's there, is there for a long time. Mm-hmm. Tem- the water vapor is just responding to the temperature change.
0: Right, and we, and we as non-scientists need to keep in mind that when scientists say positive feedback uh they're not that's talking not about good,
1: good thing. <laughs> <laughs> right uh, it just yeah, means it, it right. amplifies yeah, whatever a, it's the an issue was term. right exactly right. so it amplifies the change right. it makes the change bigger right yes but the other things that people should keep innovation.
0: The conversations I've had with people in my life who are aware that, that I mean how can you not if you're if you're if your life isn't completely about your day to day survival it's kind of hard not to be aware that <laughs> that that this is there's a lot of concern out there about this, but at the same time, even though I think people hear that there's a lot of concern and I don't think it makes sense to terrify people um but I think that there's, it looks to me, and you, you probably have your, have an opinion about this too. It looks to me like for a lot of people, they don't really get it that it will affect them. That, that, especially where we live on, on the East coast in the United States, where our winter got colder last year and, you know, wetter. And so it's like, well, we're not having, and we're, we're not so close to sea level. So, um... So I, I think when you talk about when people talk about global warming there it it can feel like well you know I don't mind hot a few hot days you know I don't really see yeah. that whole picture
1: how would you feel about 3 months you know going from from about 10 days a year Above ninety degrees to three months a year, above ninety degrees, right. which is um, part of the the mean forecast for a city like Hartford. Mm. And instead of two days above a hundred, um it would be more like thirty days above a hundred
0: Wow, well, yeah
1: so we're you know we're talking about significant warming and heat, you know, and those aren't, that's average. That's not, um, heat waves. That's not extremes. So there is going to be warming no matter what we do. Mm -hmm. You know, if you like warmer winters, you have no worries. (laughs) The winters are going to be warmer. The worries are about summer's. winter too (laughs) I was really not happy about that cold and snow but you know um, that was it's an anomaly you're not I've seen that is cold probably because of arctic sea ice loss
0: <laughs> yes so so um this is not scientific at all but the way i've been thinking about it i think about like when you have a drink in the summer and you put ice in it as so something that's at room temperature and you put ice in it because you want a cold drink it doesn't the drink itself doesn't seem to be very cold and still the ice until the ice starts melting. But the contents of that glass in general, even though your experience of it is it's getting colder for a certain period of time, the whole, the, as a whole, it's getting warmer because the ice is <laughs> the ice in there counts as part of the climate in that glass and it is melting. So, so I've thought about it that way right now or in that stage Where we are anywhere way um, where there can be some confusion because as ice the polar ice caps are melting we are just it's keeping an illusion of coolness you know there comes a point where basically your your the ice has has melted in your drink and then and then the you know it's and then
1: and then there's no more ice yeah cool you right Right. well I guess I can. I'm not entirely sure about that analogy but, yeah, I don't but know. what not... works for me yeah. is that um the ice in the polar regions are extremely important for cooling the planet right, right? so as long as that ice is there it's reflecting sunlight mm-hmm. and it it really it's like a mirror right. that helps to cool the planet and when as that ice goes away It's cooling less and less, and not only that, Mm -hmm. but what replaces it is a darker surface that absorbs more sunlight. Mm -hmm. So, um, So what's happening now with sea ice in the Arctic is that we're in this kind of crazy transition where as the ice is being lost, you're getting more heat input into the oceans, um, and and the the places where the cold can accumulate is sloshing around because it's a smaller region, and it, you know, and the atmosphere sloshes. That's what it does. It's mm-hmm. a fluid, so the slosh might end up. In Siberia one winter mm. and it might end up over the Northeast in another mm-hmm. that slosh of cold air um, but if you look at a global map that's the only place that's cold right. so that Arctic cold pool is getting smaller mm-hmm. and it's and it's getting tossed around more right. mm. that's the mm-hmm. way I think about okay. it All right. and so in any given year look everywhere else and see that Alaska was crazy warm last winter mm-hmm. and you know Europe mm-hmm. and
0: so so yeah so when we talked earlier when we were talking about doing this you said to me something that I thought was really interesting about there being a sort of a range of um, um, feelings about or opinions about the seriousness or the alarm around this among scientists in your field and that that you put yourself you you placed yourself on that spectrum as well so can you talk about what what is that range that you see and and where you fall on that spectrum and why (laughs)
1: well it varies okay okay right (laughs) depending on the day right but yeah so you know um climate scientists are human beings too and we all come at this issue from different world views so whereas the science is very clear right Mm -hmm. we understand the physics we know that um with more co2 the temperatures are of the atmosphere are going to increase near the surface where we live and um and that's not in question, so scientists understand this. Um, but how, you know, um, let's say optimistic or pessimistic one is about the future mm-hmm. depends on how you see the world and, and how you see human beings um and And so there's a a lot of there's a variation in that mm-hmm. there are those who um, you know are probably more inclined to think that human beings aren't gonna get their act together to solve this problem because um we haven't done so yet and we don't have a good track record on this this monstrous scale of problem and if you look back at earth's that at human history there are plenty of examples where people have basically ruined their environment and and civil, and so you know, local civilizations have expired or or had to move on to other places because they could, in the environment they had created for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, so you can look at the problem from that point of view and say we are basically screwed, right? or you can have the perspective that we can come together and solve major problems and that humans are smarter than that and that ultimately we care enough about our environment and um, other living beings that that we will make it happen and so you know so so the the level of concern doesn't doesn't distinguish. Um, th- there, I would say there are no scientists that, at least that I know, that are not concerned because they don't think there's a problem. But there might be people who are um, ultimately more optimistic because they see all the good things that are happening already and that there mm. is still hope. So there is very clearly still hope. Um, we can, there, there are solutions that we can put in place to make this problem much more manageable. Um, and, and so I guess I would put myself more in the optimistic camp, mm-hmm. um, again, not because there isn't a problem, but, but because I think that, that we can solve this. And maybe we won't solve it perfectly or, you know, there's still going to be um, things we wish that, have, that haven't happened, right, mm-hmm. as there always are. But I think that we can solve this problem.
0: So you said you think there are good solutions out there, and we I, I'm pretty sure I know because I think we talked about it before, but I think it was good to hear. I'd like other people to get to hear you talk about um, what, what you're seeing as good solutions.
1: So the solutions that I see are both bottom-up and top-down. If you just pay attention a little bit to your community, right, in Connecticut, in your town, and at the state level, there is a lot going on regarding climate mitigation, so reducing greenhouse gas emissions, Mm -hmm. and also adaptation, um, which means, you know, things that we need to do to prepare for more rainfall and... Higher temperatures and things like that. So there's there's a lot of activity on both fronts. Each town in Connecticut has a task force that's working on these issues. Um, Mansfield is is very active. My town, Tolland, is. So if you pay attention a little bit there, you'll see that that there's a lot going on. There's you know the state I think has a new solar energy plan. For residences, so um, already there are a lot of things in place that are helping us to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions um, in in Connecticut, in the Northeast, and then if you go to the federal level, the president. Has not with the help of Congress, unfortunately, but the President is implementing in the EPA actually groundbreaking rules for power plants. Um, They've already made rules for emissions from automobiles, they're implementing new emission Mm -hmm. rules for large trucks and these things are going to ramp down greenhouse gas emissions over the next 20 years so actually the U.S. is doing a very good job of starting to turn down our emissions. Um, Is it enough? No, not yet. Um, But the U.S. and Europe are, are starting to get much more serious about are the countries that are really working hard to develop and, and bring their populations up from poverty, right? So China, mm-hmm. India, Brazil, Mexico, um, and certainly China and India are the two big players here. And even there, there are very, very hopeful signs. China has made a pact with um, our president, to start ramping down their emissions after 2030. And right now, it looks like they're going to do it even sooner, before 2025. And that's huge. It's huge. Everyone understands this problem now. And if you're like the leader of a country of more than a billion people, you are not going to want to be the reason why you, you know, ultimately fry your people in a climate that is, you know, you don't not want to go down in history as being that person. So, and I was in India a month and a half ago, and there is more interest in global warming there than I I could ever have imagined. And I think that... Um, they are coming along as well. So, So I think these are the reasons that I'm very hopeful. It's not any one thing. It's everything. You know, individually, we can each look at our lives and how we're emitting fossil fuels and do what we can. But really, what we can do individually is limited by the large scale infrastructure that's there. Mm-hmm. So what we really need is to work with our communities and our you know, large scale infrastructure and and make sure that our leaders are putting into place the long-term plans that are going to get us to carbon neutral by 2050. Mm-hmm. You know, UConn has committed to being carbon neutral by 2050.
0: We should just clarify that UConn is the University of Connecticut because not everyone is even in this country yes. who is listening to this.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so, and, and it's not just the University of Connecticut. There, there are, I don't know how many hundred universities in the U.S. and probably around the world that have signed on to this path. And there are corporations that already have internal carbon pricing because they're finding that it saves them money to do this, and they know that that down the road they're going to have to do it anyway. So there are many, many, many things going on that are going to make this easier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm hopeful.
0: Yeah, that's
1: good. (laughs) <laughs> that doesn't mean that we don't need to continue to keep the pressure on. You right. know, people like Bill McKibben and and the you know all the young people out there that are really active on this. All of that is absolutely necessary. Yeah. To keep the pressure
0: on. Um, you mentioned India. And I know you have a special connection to India, and then and you also gave a, a presentation while you were there on climate change. And, and so I'd love to hear you talk about that experience.
1: So I do have a special connection to India because I was born there, and my father is Indian. So I was there for a month, and I was asked to give a talk at the India International Center in New Delhi, which is a fairly, well, I'm not exactly sure how to describe what it is, but it's a it's a big international center, and there are lots of people who are movers and shakers that um, attend lectures there. So I gave a talk about global warming, and in, in the way that I that I normally do, which is I talk about the history of the science, how it's been established for hundred, more than 150 years, and and kind of the development of the science. And, and there were probably 100, over 100 people at this lecture. The kinds of questions that I got were really revealing. No one in the audience was denying the science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they do not have a fossil fuel lobby in the way mm-hmm. that we do in the US. So the problems with action in India are not the same as they are here in the US. They're not misinformation and denialism in in India as I expect in China and other developing countries. The the reasons that they may be less inclined to take action to mitigate greenhouse gases are because their primary purpose is to develop economically and to provide water and electricity to all their people and education and and so You know, when you are still working on um, basic needs for your people, you're less inclined to worry about these other problems. How much accumulated CO2 is in the atmosphere, and most of that is because of us, right. right, U.S. and Europe. So so looking out into the future, they're going to be equally as responsible, but right now, that's
0: not, they don't feel like that's their problem. Hmm. And so... Your response so, to that?
1: And while I was there, they didn't have heat waves the way they did after I left in Delhi, but um, there were unseasonable rains occurring. Um, with incredible frequency in the northern plains, like where a lot of the agriculture is. And um, I was there in March and April during what is the harvest season. It's the harvest of the winter crops. And rains then, especially big thunderstorms and hail, were damaging their crop harvests. Mm -hmm. And so... So if you follow the news of India at all, you hear, oh, there are farmers committing suicide and, you know, this is really unusual. It's been happening the last few years. And then they've also been having these incredible flooding events. Um, You know, every year during the monsoon, there's flooding in India. That's normal and expected. But they're having severe events in places where um my cousin was telling me that you know Hindus do pilgrimages into these this region of the Himalayas um where there are shrines that have been there for At least a thousand years and so there have been flooding events that have wiped out these places and you know that there hasn't been rain like that for at least a thousand years Mm -hmm. right a thousand Mm -hmm. year event minimum because those shrines were in place and so so they're having these extreme rain events that are really um Really extreme, mm. they're very rare events, but they're happening more frequently. Mm. and so people, everyone that I talk to would ask me because I'm a climate scientist, well, so is this global warming um are we do we need to expect more of this? Are these unseasonable rains that are affecting our harvests are are we going to have to deal with this more? You know, and so in my talk, I talked about what the projections say for India and there's a lot of uncertainty about the projections for India but Mm -hmm. but the things that we you know are pretty confident about um, suggest that there will be more rain there's more water vapor in a warmer atmosphere Mm -hmm. the monsoons the rainfall is likely to be more intense and also the heat is going to be more intense. So the kinds of things that they're experiencing are not at all inconsistent with what is likely to happen in the future. And so so they're at this place where their primary purpose is to develop, and yet they are fully realizing that this climate in the future for them, is going to cause a lot of problems. And so they are, I think, on the cusp of coming on board to do something about it as well.
0: You were going to also talk about the um, the geoengineering. Um, oh, right, right, right.
1: Things. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so geoengineering is a term that... Um, that describes this idea that humans can consciously um, and with purpose uh, control the climate um, and I would say what we're doing now is unconsciously and without purpose affecting the climate right mm-hmm. by understand what we're doing. Very regularly for a long time we could reflect a lot of sunlight and cool the planet and that's, that's probably the, the method that has been considered most widely because it's actually doable and it would clearly reduce the temperature mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of concern about this because people have been talking about it I think the guys who wrote Freakonomics were talking about it. Is oh yeah, we can just you know do this geoengineering and solve the problem, so climate change isn't you know no big deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and but anyone who actually studies um, geoengineering and and th- what what will happen? So we've run climate models with um, these aerosols or particles in the stratosphere to see how the the climate system would work if we were to do that. And yes, we, we definitely can cool things off, but it's not doing anything about the CO2 problem, right? We're not reducing CO2 we're just putting this dust up in the stratosphere so um, some of the impacts of that are yes temperatures cool off but we whiten our atmosphere so we don't have blue skies anymore we can't see the stars at night because we've put all this gunk into the stratosphere we are not solving the CO2 problem, so the oceans are still acidifying uh, this this change in temperature and the aerosols will affect circulation the way the um, atmosphere works, and so there are certain places that will be drier and other places that will be wetter, and every place will be more dirty. Because of all of that, mm-hmm. and so there are just lots and lots of problems with with trying to do a solution like this. and so people who study geoengineering, they generally don't even want to study it, but they feel that they have to just to show mm-hmm. that it is bad solution. It is not one that we want to have to use. It is one of last resort mm-hmm. in case things get too bad.
0: And it and it's I want to leave that. I, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad. that's why I wanted you to <laughs> weigh in on that because when we talked about it earlier um before we were recording, I have when you told me that you were more optimistic, my I was sort of worried that you were going to say that there's these ge- geoengineering solutions that will take care of everything, because I had heard things, you know, along the lines of what you're actually yeah, saying.
1: No. no, geoengineering can work to reduce the temperature of the Earth if things get so bad that we need a quick solution. But, you know, the it, it's so problematic on so many fronts, including... You know, so who's going to do it? Who's going to make the decision? And who's going to be responsible? And who's going to pay for it? And who's going to make sure that we keep doing it? Because as soon as we stop, it's going to get hot again and it's going to get even hotter because presumably we'll continue to emit CO2. So there are many, many, many reasons why we don't want to go down that path.
0: Right, right. Yeah, ethical, environmental. Common <laughs> yeah. Right. So, what does it mean that the oceans are acidifying? What, why is why is that part of climate change, and what is the significance of it?
1: Okay. Is that a, is that so, a hard one? Um, this is, yeah, it's not my expertise, so okay. I'm just gonna like hand wavy talk about what I understand about Perfect. it. Perfect, that's
0: fine for um, now.
1: <laughs> so. So, we're putting c o two in the atmosphere. The oceans are gonna are removing some of that c o two so we're very fortunate because not all the c o two we put in the atmosphere stays there mm-hmm. um completely the The oceans suck some of that c o two out okay. um, They do it slowly mm-hmm. over time, but they they have been you know. Removing some co2 and they will for a long time. So um, So the additional co2 that goes into the oceans Changes the pH of the oceans. Okay. So it it creates um, So the oceans are, are not very acidic, right, but right. but even small Increases in the acidity can have a bit, big effect on a lot of the the life that's in the oceans, especially because many of them um, form use calcium carbonate to form their shells. Mm-hmm. And so um, any increase in acidity is going to hurt their ability to form shells and skeletons. You know, if you take a piece of chalk and you put some lemon juice on it, it's going to, like, it crumbles. Mm -hmm. And that's basically when you make the oceans more acidic, the shells, shell-making creatures aren't going to do very well. And phytoplankton, which is one of the, the, you know, basic life forms in the ocean that everything else feeds on. Are some of those creatures? So you're fundamentally affecting the food chain right. in yeah. the ocean,
0: and also are where we get oxygen, right? I mean, that's a major right source of exactly. oxygen. Exactly. So
1: a lot of these creatures are are responsible for our oxygen atmosphere. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. So this is something that that is incredibly important not just for life in the oceans but also for us Mm -hmm. and um and it's it's a tragedy there are lots of tragedies if we continue down the fossil burning all the fossil fuel path there are very real um estimates of increasing extinction right Mm -hmm. the there are I'm not an expert on that, but a lot have been, has been written.
0: Well, um, yeah, I mean, there's... The
1: current extinction that we're responsible for.
0: Right, and our own, you know, it's 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 completely within the realm of what people are writing about is contemplating our own extinction because of it. Cause,
1: right. Yeah. So. Right, because we don't even understand to the extent that we rely on other life right. on the planet. Right, right. I, I don't think we have a clear, a yeah. clear understanding scientifically or otherwise on that. Mm-hmm. Other than you know, we know that everything is connected. Um, mm-hmm. But, but I, can I give one example that that I find kind of enlightening myself? So there's this place in Arizona called Biosphere Two.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I don't Some people might have heard of it. I, I it was, it. you know. Yeah, this kind of crazy multi-billionaire guy decided he wanted to build a, a place um, in preparation for leaving Earth when Earth was no longer habitable. He wanted to be able to build something like this on Mars or someplace else where he could bring life forms from Earth and populate a, a domed you know, living, habitable space. Mm -hmm. So he called it Biosphere 2. Biosphere 1 is Earth. Mm -hmm. Biosphere 2 was this domed place in Arizona where he was going to seal it off um, and create all these... Um, eco zone so he had some he had an ocean a very small one he had um, a tropical forest and some agriculture and various life zones and and he and they you know he hired scientists and they set this place up and then they were going to live there completely sealed off um, for a number of years To test the system. Could they maintain the right oxygen levels? Could they farm and just live off the food that they were creating? You know, that kind of stuff. And so they didn't last more than a year, actually, a few months before the oxygen levels went crazy and they couldn't, the people that were living there, the scientists weren't, you know, very healthy. They weren't living on the food that they had um, managed to grow, and the things that did the best were ants hmm. and and um, insects. They went crazy, <laughs> and so it it was just. I mean, to me, it was an incredible example of of the hubris of humans that we hmm. think that we can create a place that can sustain us for the long term you know we really have no
0: idea how to do that right yet right i think i remember hearing an interview with someone who was in that biosphere dome and and i think i remember her saying how sick she was of um sweet potatoes because that was like one of the foods that actually grew well there and and that was just all they had for a period of time Oh, okay. Well, this is a good start. So thank you so much. Um, is there anything else that you would like to say before I we sign off? That, um, you know, oh, I think I've, I've talked you, everyone's ear off, so
1: <laughs> I think I'm good for now.
0: Well, um, I will just say that Angie has offered to be our go-to climate scientist with any questions for this podcast. So in the future... If anyone listening has any specific questions that you would like to address her way, you can send them my way. Um, you can find my email. We have a website now for this podcast. It's hellocc.info. Um, and you can also subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Or you can reach me on Twitter at amykstudio, A-M-Y-K, the word studio. Um Yeah, so um, thank you so much, Angie. This was awesome. And um, enjoy your however many days you have left in Colorado, and we'll see you back here on the East Coast soon. All right. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye Bye. Bye.